Hello, and welcome to another episode of Broadening the Narrative. This is a podcast where I talk to people who are broadening the narrative I was taught. Really quickly, I wanted to thank the latest person who left a review and share it with you all. Stephanie, who I met over the summer, wrote a great listen. You will learn new things and hear great stories and people's journeys through life, the struggles that they have faced to go through, and where they are in their journey. I learn something new every time I listen. It's a type of therapy. Nikki is very understanding and kind. Love it. A disclaimer I want to give is that I am not a therapist, but I am glad that the conversations on the podcast are healing for those who are listening, and I want therapy to be accessible for all people. I want to thank everyone who has rated and reviewed Broadening the Narrative. If you're listening and haven't already, you can head to Apple Podcasts to rate and review too. You're probably tired of hearing me say this, but your engagement helps with visibility. So each rating and review really does matter so that more people can find these sacred conversations. The music for season three is titled Love Is by Bandy. Here at the beginning, I also want to provide a warning for references to child abuse, sexual abuse, rape, suicide, abortion, white colonizers assaulting and abusing black people, spiritual abuse, and toxic Christian theology about children and women that come up in this conversation. This episode has also been marked as explicit. You can find Broadening the Narrative on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I love connecting with all of you on social media. I'm your host, Nikki Pappas. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm so glad you're here. As I got older, it was like, oh, I'm really angry. Maybe I should talk to somebody. (laughs) Maybe I should talk about why I'm angry. What's underneath that anger? Is it that I feel demeaned, embarrassed, sad, unheard? What's underneath that? And when you start getting underneath it, that's where the healing is. And it's like, oh, I don't have to exist like this. I can I can communicate my needs and I can stop hurting other people. On today's episode of Broadening the Narrative, I am joined by Tasha Hunter. Tasha is a speaker, host of the When We Speak podcast, a mental health therapist, and the author of What Children Remember. Tasha also happens to be someone I have had the great joy of getting to know since this past summer. It's so great to be talking with you, Tasha. How are you today? I'm awesome. I'm so excited and so glad to be here. Like you don't even know, I've been looking forward to this ever since you asked me to be on your podcast. Oh, I'm so glad you said yes. Oh, well, before we get started, I want to say that I think I first heard some of your story on the Her Story Speaks podcast, and I started following you on Instagram, and then you started co-hosting the book club that I am now a part of uh, with Andrea, the host of Her Story Speaks, and I just couldn't sign up for it fast enough. So thank you for the community that you're cultivating with the book club, and our book club calls have just been such a source of encouragement for me. And yes, I too have been really looking forward to this conversation with you. And we're going to be talking about your book and some of your journey, healing, complex developmental trauma that you write about. So thank you again for saying yes to being a guest. Yeah. Yeah. It was a no brainer. Absolutely. Well, to start us off, can you share a little about yourself, your background, your pronouns, and anything else you think would be helpful for us? Yeah. So I'm Tasha. My pronouns are, are she, her, hers. 
I live in North Carolina. Uh, I'm originally from Arkansas. And uh, so, so, you know, pretty Southern, pretty, pretty country, you know? And so <laughs> um, let's see, I, I feel like, you know, I identify as a, a queer black woman and, and I feel like existing in my skin, Nikki, it, it's, it's like, I am living the living embodiment of what my ancestors fought for. So um, I wake up to that reality every day. And sometimes it's, it's hard to be, you know, a black woman in this world. And, and sometimes a lot of times it's absolutely beautiful. And I don't know, that's, that's who I am. Also my love language, just for anybody that, that is listening, when you ask me, like, tell me a little bit about yourself. I was thinking about that this morning. I said, you know what? My love language is people who cook for me and people who do long conversations. So if you're that kind of a person where you're like, let me feed you, Tasha, I'm going to cook something for you. Um, that's who I am. Yes. Oh. I don't know. That was just so random, but there, that that's what you get, Nikki. I love it. Well, I'm just right over in South Carolina, so I'll have to come cook for you and yeah. have long conversations because <laughs> I love it too. I love it too. That's it. Yes. Well, I read your memoir, What Children Remember, which I'm holding a copy of, and it's just so beautiful. Like the cover, so beautiful. Um, and I'm actually going to give away a copy of it when your episode airs, if that's okay with you over on sure. the broadening the narrative page. So I rated what children remember with five stars on Goodreads and wrote a little review that I wanted to share here in what children remember Tasha Hunter vulnerably shares about the complex de developmental trauma she experienced as a child and how she was impacted. Tasha is bold, brave, and beautiful as she names the harm done to her. Her powerful and prophetic voice is needed for all who are healing. What Children Remember is a must-read book, and I highly recommend it. So, mm. Tasha, what compelled you to write What Children Remember, and who did you have in mind as you wrote your story? So when I started writing, I envisioned women, and I use that term loosely, those who identify as, as, as a woman, whoever that is, but I, I imagine women all over the world who were living in kind of this really secret pain, this silent pain, the pain that you just don't even have the words for. And, and, and honestly, let, let me go. That's, that's the second truth. That's actually not the first truth. The first truth is that Nikki, I wrote that book for me. Because I was living in silent pain. And, and I thought, okay, mortality is a thing. Like, I'm not going to be here forever. And I wanted my story, my truth told. Yeah. But I knew that if I could be honest and just put it all out there. And I just said, all of the shame mm -hmm. that I, that lived inside my body if I could put it all in this book, everything that happened, how I felt about it then, how I feel about it now, surely if I put my stuff out there, I just believed that other people would identify with me and, and I would no longer be living in that shameful place. Even if people can't identify, just validating my story and saying, wow, 
like you just said, I read your book. You said you read it like, you know, pretty quickly, right? And that was validation for me. Like, wow, somebody knows what this girl has lived through. Holding that compassionate space. So first I wrote it for myself. Then I thought, I know I'm not the only one. So what if I just share all the things and I don't worry about the the naysayers, the critics, Mm -hmm. and other people will be blessed by what I write. I just felt that in my spirit. So, yeah. Yeah. Have there been a lot of naysayers and critics? No, not at all. Um, yeah, not, not none that, none that matter and, and not a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, maybe I can only think of one. And so, uh, and and so that person doesn't does not matter at all. Um, otherwise, I've heard from other adults who have experienced childhood trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse, parental abandonment. I've heard from others um, who had you know who still experience or did experience suicidal thoughts or had attempted suicide. I've heard from others who had experienced various levels of church trauma. I heard from others who were in the LGBTQ plus community and understood what that shame was like. Um, yeah, it's, it's it, it. And every month, this is not a book that I even market. I just wrote my story. I didn't even think about like actually selling the book. Right. That whole thing came later by other people saying, you wrote this really beautiful book. Why aren't you talking about it? And so, um, I don't know, I'm almost forgetting what, what I wanted to say about that, but, but so I wrote the book and it's like, it keeps selling. Mm-hmm. It just keeps selling and people keep reading it and keep reaching out. And it's literally a God thing. You follow me on IG. I don't say anything about this. Book. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but people keep hearing about it and they keep purchasing it. And I think that it's just landing in the hands of people that need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I didn't at the time, I'm, I'm long-winded. I can't think of a book that was like mine. Right. So yeah. Yeah. You have a very unique voice in this conversation and we can get into that more later too, because you can tell, or I can tell as I read your book, uh, the healing you've done. And how that comes across in your writing um, without making excuses, <laughs> you know, you, you, uh, you don't make excuses for the abuse you experienced, um, but you have a very unique perspective and the empathy that you exude is, is evidence of the healing you've been doing. And I think what's also powerful with your book is that you took control of your story. And I think yeah, I read a book about writing, you know, cause I'm, I'm actually working on a memoir too, that I hope to publish next year, self-publish, um, about the spiritual abuse that I experienced at remedy church. And I've done a whole podcast episode on this. And now I'm writing the story and looking at how was I so drawn to this pastor figure? What was it about my story? I was trying to complete. Uh, and so I'm examining like my relationship with my dad, um, men, I, dated or, you know, guys I dated. And then uh, as I got older and just trying to get all those strings together. 
And so I had read something that talked about, um, now I just like lost my train of thought, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it just happens. This, I know, I know. And it's, I did not sleep well last night. And so I feel like that just puts me way behind in my mental processes this morning. Um, but yeah, just like telling our story. Um, and, and one of my friends who, when I was getting ready to do the podcast episode, I had asked her like, should I name the church? And she said to me, my friend, Carrie Hilton, I was talking to her and Danielle Bolin, who edit, um, she does the, Danielle does the graphics for the podcast, but Carrie said, you should do whatever you should brings you healing. Mm. And so, yeah. And so for you with your story, like doing what brings you healing and putting yourself and your healing at the forefront of that. And that, that, that being your ultimate goal, um, uh, was just really beautiful. And so I can't remember that other part. If I do, we'll come back to it, <laughs> but yeah. But yeah. Okay. So kind of jumping into something that is very vulnerable for me to admit, uh, you wrote on page 103 about, a, uh, you included a quote from Elizabeth Gilbert that echoes a sentiment that I've really been wrestling with for a few years. And she said, I feel like there are women who are genuinely born to be mothers and women who really, uh, oh, and women who are born to be aunties and women who really probably should not be allowed in your children. The tragedy that happens is when any one of those women ends up in the wrong category. And so in the evangelical circles, I was a part of the idol created for women and sort of the supposedly ideal woman uh, is for women to aspire to be wives and mothers. And one, I think is just really irresponsible to give this blanket statement to all women um, that this is what you should grow to do without equipping them to heal past trauma, without equipping them and making sure that this is something that they wanted to do, that, the, that this is a desire that they actually have. Right. And I think an additional layer that complicated things for me was sort of this circular reasoning within the circles I was a part of, of you create God's will by what you do. And so I would, when I really struggled after becoming a mom with some severe postpartum depression, I had to tell myself like, well, I know I should be a mom because I am a mom, right? Like this is God's will because it's what's happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And so in some ways at that time, it brought some level of solace because I was able to sort of detach from the feelings of <laughs> inadequacy. I could just be like, well, but I know this is what I'm supposed to do. And now I can look back on it and think that it is pretty dismissive let's say there's someone who really wants to be a mom and isn't right. And then that reasoning of, well, you're not a mom because God doesn't want you to be is very dismissive and hurtful. Um, right. So it was like all of that when I felt inadequate as a new mom and, and overwhelmed and felt like I'm a failure, I could cling to, uh, what I was telling myself. Right. So I am curious what your thoughts are around this language of God's will and creating God's will for our lives by our actions contrasted with this idea put forward by Elizabeth Gilbert and your story, how all that comes together for you. Yeah, I identify with you um, so much. Uh, Now, it has been a number of years. Let me just put this disclaimer out there for your listeners. It has been so long since I have actually sat and studied the Bible and really delved deeper into scripture and history. That's so far from who I am at this point in my life. 
but I will say that there were there were so many years as a younger woman where in the churches that I attended, it was very clear what your role was as a woman. Very specific in terms of how you are to present yourself in relation to men, you know, in contrast to men, in relationship, you know, with with men and, and in the church and just your role in the world was, it was mm-hmm. just, you are here to serve. You come from Adam's rib, <laughs> uh, which all of this sounds so ridiculous now, as I'm even saying it, you know, these early lessons, even as a child, that we are a help mate. And what that reinforced for me as a young black girl and a young black woman is that I don't have autonomy over myself Mm -hmm. or my decisions or anything. I am here to help and to serve. Right. And to be a vessel, uh, you know, in terms of being fruitful and multiplying. Mm -hmm. If I'm not serving and helping and being fruitful and multiplying in terms of children, then I have no role. I have no purpose. I'm out of alignment in terms of God's will. And part of my deconstruction was really questioning that narrative. And well, what did God really create me for? Was it simply to be a wife and a mom? Because I can tell you, I lack total fulfillment in and just being that, right. what do I want for my life? Because I have a voice, I have dreams. And so I think that so much trauma has happened. And I don't know if I'm answering your question, but, but this is what comes up as you, as you ask the question, Elizabeth Gilbert's quote, it, it just, I was like, whoa, this has to go in my book because I think that what has happened for women, you know, when I think about growing up in the church, it's that, yeah, you're pregnant. You're, you're meant to have that child. If you get pregnant, you're it, you're supposed to have that child. But what if I don't have any maternal instinct? And what if I have unresolved trauma? Yeah. And what if I don't want this child? Yeah. You're telling me I have, I, and then I have to, and if you grow up in a Christian home or a Christian family, then you've got other people who aren't raising the child telling you that you need to, to keep the child. Mm-hmm that you'll get through it, that God will give you what you need. And they're saying all the things and ignoring the trauma. Yeah. And in my case, and I want to go back to something you said about my book, a lot of people that have read my book, you know, they talk about that they can tell that I am writing it from a heel. I'm writing it from the scar instead of the wound. Yeah. My, my good friend, Amanda Lytle of the safe Haven podcast uh, talks about that a lot. And and she said, Tasha, she said, it's so obvious that you're writing from the scar. And, the, you know, and a lot of people have even commented the compassion that I gave in my book to my mother, to my brother, to my family. And, and so, you know, w- when I think about that, it's like the woman who gave birth to me, it's just my heart, like, like as much hell as she put me through. And she absolutely, as I say all the time, did not love me, does not love me today. I'm compassionate about the fact that she grew up 
and she experienced a certain level of trauma that changed maybe who she was designed to become. Mm. And maybe, you know, obviously by the words that she said to me, when she said to me, I should have aborted you, I never wanted you. And all the other things, she was not supposed to be a mother. So the tragedy is that she had people speaking to her, telling her what to do. Mm-hmm. And then all she did was cause harm. Right. She only knows one language and that is violence. And so the tragedy is that she landed in the wrong category. There were other options. Yeah, and and I want to be careful what I say, right? Because my kids could one day hear this. Um, but yes, when I was part of that church, when when it's kind of put into you over and over again, you are a helper and the best way, like, and I wish I could say I was lying that the pastor or quote unquote pastor, um, you know, it's like, that's the title this person held, um, but not very pastorly when it comes to uh, what a pastor should be. But when he can stand up there and say, the best way that my wife helps me is by bearing my children. Mm. And I got married when I was 20. You were a baby. Yeah. Like nobody, like, and I've said this before on the podcast, like it was going to be anyone. I'm glad it was Steven hands yeah. down. Glad it was the person I'm married to. But, um, and you know, in my family, like there were people in my family who didn't want it to happen and I can see their reasoning. Um, however, uh, yeah, it's like, if I could tell anyone now, the things I didn't hear. I don't know if they would listen if they're just, I mean, I had a ton of unresolved trauma too. Right. And I'm seeing the marriage as a way to kind of try to help move me forward um, and and get me out of certain things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, this idea though, that being a wife and having children should somehow fulfill all of us. It's again, irresponsible, as I said earlier, but also it's a lot to put on to someone else it's not Steven's responsibility to, to fill me in every way. And it's definitely not my children's. Like they didn't ask to be here. I can't right. put that on them to be everything for me and to, to fill me where I'm lacking. Um, and I also want to say like, I'm with you on the not reading the Bible, which yeah. And I've talked about this on another episode too. It's that idea of, I used to always read it. And, and I had this crisis of who am I, if I'm not the person who reads the Bible, like who am I? Um, so, yeah. Okay. So you were already going here, um, mentioning, uh, stuff about your mom and, and the trauma there. So when you look back on sweet little Tasha, what are three words that you would describe yourself as when looking back into your childhood and adolescence with your mother, your biological mother? When I look back at little Tasha, three words that I would use to describe her, mm-hmm. I would say, Fearful, fragile, and innocent. Just thinking about her, it really makes me emotional to think about her because. I was so silent. 
And like my grandmother would say, you were such a quiet child. And I was, and I, and I stayed silent for a long time, making up for that now, but <laughs> I just didn't even know what do I say? Like the pain in my heart was so enormous, Nikki. And I didn't even know what to say to people. Mm-hmm. And it, when I read, um, I'm going to get the book, Dr. Maya Angelou's book. Mm. Um, wh- wh- why do cage birds sing? I'm, I'm probably butchering the title, which is weird. I know why cage birds sing. Uh, and when I read her book and she talked about, she went into this selective mutism. Mm-hmm. Mine wasn't to that de- degree, but it was similar. Mm-hmm. And she went into her selective mutism to, to protect herself and her family and the abuser and all of or or because of you know what had happened with the abuser and and all of the things um but I just didn't have anybody to talk to and just the innocence yeah or the fear all of it just being stored in my little body and I have so much Mm -hmm. compassion for my younger self she was so precious is so precious yeah. And, and I'm not saying that your grandmother said this as a compliment, but the idea of when, when you hear people talk about, oh, you were such a quiet baby or you were such a quiet child and they mean it as such a good thing when it's like, oh, but what was underneath that silence? What was not being said? Yeah. And so that for you, part. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So there was a lot that wasn't being said. You experienced a lot of trauma. Uh, so could you talk about what people mean when they talk about ACEs uh, and how those complex developmental traumas can impact children? Yeah, so ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, uh, that came about um, a study by Ki- the insurance company Kaiser Permanente. And they were kind of looking to see, you know, how really, if I could just give the short end of it, how can we decrease <laughs> the amount that we're paying in insurance costs, right? Um, you know, we got all these people coming in with these chronic medical conditions. What do we do with, you know, how, how can we decrease, you know, what, what we're paying out for their medical stuff? And so through this really long study, what they found out, and Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris um, does a good job of talking about this. You guys, if you're listening, listen to Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris's TED Talk. Um, on adverse childhood experiences and this whole thing. And what they noticed is that people with with chronic medical conditions, um, early pregnancy, obesity, all of that kind of stuff, heart attack, stroke, um, addiction, substance, substance addiction and abuse, that there was a correlation with trauma. Mm -hmm. So the higher your ACEs score, your adverse childhood experiences score, the more likelihood that your mortality is gonna be impacted, your health is gonna be impacted. Well, your mortality is impacted because of of high health health risk. And so um, I often talk about when I used to work in the medical field and I would say to to the nurses and to the medical providers, the doctors, the PAs, all of them, when you have a patient that comes in over and over and over and over, mm-hmm. 
and they're just really sick and they got all kinds of stuff going on. They're not there because they don't have anything else to do. Like if they're coming in with fibromyalgia, you know, uh, any, any kind of chronic health conditions, pain, physical pain, anything. You might want to start looking at what's your family history in terms of trauma, what's your history in terms of because the higher your score, the more likely depression, anxiety, uh, suicide, again, obesity, teen pregnancy or early pregnancy, um, and all of the other things that happen that 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 happen to our bodies. Mm-hmm. So I have a high ACEs score. And let's see, I think my score is maybe a six or a seven. I'll have to look, I'd have to look at this at my questionnaire again to see, but I have a high ACEs score. And so what that meant for me is that I've had some, some medical issues. I you know, won't go on and into them here to a great degree, but, but I've got some medical issues. Um, obesity, definitely uh, coped with my pain in a number of ways. Um, trying to, to kill myself, uh, leaning on alcohol and, and all the things, um, unprotected sex. And so it made sense. Mm-hmm. If I'm living dangerously, it's gonna affect my health. And if trauma is stored in my body, which we know trauma affects us at a, at a cellular level. And then there's not just the trauma I experience; it's vicarious trauma, it's ancestral trauma it's going to affect my health. So in a nutshell, that is ACEs. And so anytime um, a client of mine is talking about their trauma, I'm pulling out the ACEs questionnaire and and we're having a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. And because trauma impacts the body in all the ways, you have to heal the body in all the ways. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, cause when you wrote, I never had dreams that were happy, peaceful, or funny. I lived and slept in terror, uh, gives such evidence to that high ACE score and, um, and to see the ways that it impacted you in childhood and, and well into your adulthood as well. And, um, yeah, and it's, it's interesting. So for me, I took the test the other night as I was, uh, writing the questions, I had an eight. And then once, once I saw that, you know, then it kind of made me rethink, oh yeah, like my depression. Oh yeah. My, you know, uh, all these ways that I created for coping, um, and now trying to learn to heal the body and like, uh, the book, uh, the body keeps the score and going to therapy and trying to have an embodied practice that helps me heal this body. Um, yeah, it's all very, just seeing how all connected it all is. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. And then for you as a therapist, then be able to pull it out and help other people make those connections to bring the healing to their bodies. It's really powerful too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So my next question has some more lengthy backstory. So feel free to uh, interject whenever, if if something comes up for you, even if I haven't gotten to the question. Um, So when reading about what you endured, I thought of Resma Minicum's book, My Grandmother's Hands, which I think I saw you post about having read that book. And it is such a powerful look at how we carry trauma in our bodies, like you're talking about. And he connected the violence that white people inflicted on one another 
prior to white people inflicting that violence on black people during enslavement in this country. And I would say violence that white people continue inflicting. Uh, it didn't stop. Um, and so I do recommend the book after reading it with Letty, who I know that, you know, Letty well mm-hmm. as part of her Patreon group and in her book club. And she said she'd still be recommending it with a caveat. So I feel like I should include the caveat too, that, you know, all of us in her book club are of the like abolish the police, uh, or at least on that call, like abolish the police. And, um, so if that's where people are hoping the book goes, that's just not where Resma Minicum's work, that's not where he goes with it. So just to give people a heads up who, who might want to read that. But yeah, what did you think of Resma Minicum connecting his own grandmother's actions in the quote whoopings she would give him and his brothers to what is called traumatic retention, which he explained as a trauma related behavior that gets passed down through the generations until it loses its original context and begins to look like culture. Because he talks about his grandmother growing up in a sharecropping family and how it was, you know, her grandparents had spent much of their lives on a plantation where enslaved black people were whipped by other black, um, by in front of other black people as a tactic to control and dominate enslaved people. So Resma traced that origin of whoopings with a switch that he experienced from his grandmother to the abuse endured by enslaved people during whippings with a whip. So do you think that traumatic retention is at all connected to your biological mother's violent abuse? I think that, 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 how, you know, Resma, and I've spoken about this as well on Letty's podcast it's absolutely connected in all of our histories. It's it's no coincidence that the colonizers bring us over here and they subject us to all kinds of violence. They use the Bible as, as a tool to kind of get us in line, right? to make us submit. They use beatings to make us submit. And fully believing that they have power and authority over us. And to a certain degree, so many parents believe I have power and authority over you as my child. And to get you to submit, to get you to um, obey, the way to do that is to beat you And that came from the colonizers. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very clear the connection between colonizers, white supremacy, and trauma in the Black community, and how we discipline, not just in the Black community, but so many of us. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And when you know that and and you're able to link racialized trauma and then ancestral or you know generational trauma it's it's very clear the the parallels there yeah and then it's a process of unlearning like when my daughter was younger spanking her because I didn't know any better I was still like in that mode of thinking that that was the right thing to do to beat somebody to show them that you love them. You don't have to hit somebody or beat somebody to make them obey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
uh, and there's many ways to parent. Um, beating, hitting, slapping, whooping, whatever you call it, physical violence in any capacity, in any, no matter what it is, physical violence never equals love. Mm-hmm. Mm. And oftentimes when parents use physical means of discipline, it's, it's usually for healthier parents. It's, well, I've given you how many chances? So I'm going to swat your behind, you know? And I have compassion for those parents, by the way, because it's like, listen, I've tried everything, you know? And, and so no judgment for those parents, but for the ones that are more on the, the harsher end, that was given to us, unfortunately, passed down from, from the colonizers. And, and if we're ever going to heal, like in a real way, we've got to stop it. And so that was my awareness as a mom is, is this even necessary? Like, this is violent. Yeah. Whooping my daughter is violent. And, and I have since apologized and made, we've made amends, you know, for, for that. She didn't see a problem with it, but I did now that I'm a therapist mm-hmm. and, and I'm on the healed, you know, end of my own journey. It's a problem to me. So long yeah. answer, but, but absolutely it's, it's related. Yeah. Yeah. And I had found uh, an article that Resma Minicum wrote about this, what we pass on to our kids, which is basically what is in the book. So I'll link that for anyone who doesn't have the book, like they can still read that article and get more information about that. Um, Okay. Here's another long-winded question. So we're talking about the spankings and, and God being used for, uh, like during enslavement, the Bible and God, and then carry into even with parent-child relationships continuing today, the Bible and God being used. So there is a three-part series titled Ministry of Violence, Corporal Punishment, Evangelicals, and the Doctrine of Obedience that just came out, uh, written by Talia Lavin. And Talia wrote, uh, use any synonym you like, uh, spank, swat, pop, discipline, chastise. What we're talking about, like in the research she did, is striking a child with the intent to cause pain. Corporal punishment of children is outlawed completely in 63 countries, but in the U.S. it is legal in all 50 states. With paddles, fists, and palms, with spoons and switches, it is permissible and in many social contexts encouraged to punish children physically for any misbehavior. Hitting children has the support of the Supreme Court. In 19 states, hitting children is permitted in public schools. So I just read all that in the past few weeks. Um, She had these articles come out and I just started thinking about it. It's like the hypocrisy isn't lost on me of this sector of quote pro-life Christians who, uh, and I was a part of that group and I said these things and I believe these things. Um, so I'm not trying to distance myself in a way that absolves me of responsibility. And like you talked about the making of amends today. Um, but yeah, I was part of this group who would argue for the rights of the unborn while also advocating for what we called spanking, but what was inflicting pain to dominate, to control, like all those things you said, like carrying over. Um, but yeah, God was being invoked in these punishments, right? Which adds a whole other layer to the trauma when you think God ordains this and God sanctions this. So how are you affected by the use of God, quote unquote, God and various scriptures from the Bible that were an attempt to justify the abuse that you were enduring? What it translated for me, Nikki, is when, 
when my mother would use the Bible as justification for, for how she disciplined Mm -hmm. and really what it was is how she abused. Yeah. Like the instance of her blackening my eyes, both eyes became infected and I was a child. Um, Whatever the abuse, I mean, she, she would hit me with, you know, she one time hit me with a two by four across my back. Um, and going to school with so many bruises op- that it like opened and I would, I would wear, like, I'm, I'm wearing like a sweatshirt, you know, that covers everything, you know, today. And, and I would wear clothing to school. Like she didn't even have to say anything. I would automatically like wear things to school the next day that didn't show any of my scars. And so what it did for me is it made me as a child feel like that, okay, this is some form of love. It feels very unloving. It feels like hatred. So does God hate me? Mm. Yeah. Is God angry with me? Is when I do something wrong in God's sight, is it that I should be paid with violence, paid back with violence or, or disciplined with violence? It made me feel as a child that God disapproved of me. Mm. That I was not wanted by God. Yeah. And, and especially when there was no love to balance out the beatings and the daily, um, I guess, abandonment of love. Mm -hmm. I didn't have anything to balance that out. It was just violence. Mm -hmm. So, So it just made sense in my young mind that God does not like me, that God does not love me, God does not want me. I felt very much like the way I was being treated was the way that God viewed me as well. Concerned with the image you are projecting instead of the humans you are protecting. It's deadly if even one adult becomes accepting. It lessens the presence of suicidal thoughts of these adolescents. You're putting people on the streets and trying to flex about it. This type of evil is deceiving and I'm vexed about it. It shuns believers and I need for you to recognize it. True love is healing and I plead for you to expedite it. Realigning and realizing the silver lining, never hypnotizing or weaponizing with false idols. Deeply vital, we need revival to break the cycles and unite our minds over what's inside and makes us. Yeah, and again, yeah, that's a whole other layer that complicates and the trauma in your child. Yeah. Yeah. And can I add to that also? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that how we treat our children and how we how we communicate the Bible is important because what happens is. And I've seen it in my life and I've seen it in the lives of so many people that I'm in relationship with and that I work with is what happens is you, then you move into an adult where you feel like if I do this thing, I'm going to disappoint God. Mm-hmm. If yeah. I make this decision, God is going to be angry with me. I'm going to go to hell. Mm-hmm. And it just translates to. And, and then, you know, also, if, if I do this thing or if I make this decision or if I make this mistake, 
people are going to withdraw their love. They're going to abandon me. Yeah. And so it translates into this whole thing of like self loathing, you know, and, and, and just diminished self-worth and fear and shame based off of how we were disciplined or loved or treated in those formative years. Yeah. Yeah. One of the people that was quoted in those uh, articles said something about uh, her mother would always talk about how strong-willed she was when she was beating her. And she was reflecting on her childhood. She said, I don't know what it was about me that made my mom think I was so strong-willed, but I want that back. You Mm. know, it's that idea of like you were talking about you're making up for all the silence of your childhood. So it's like reclaiming so much now and the empowerment to do that is, yeah. Mm. And I think too, another thing that came up in that series was linking the conditioning of the child who's on the receiving end of this corporal punishment to associate pain with love and then to look for that in a romantic partner. And she wrote about in 2017, a study that found that children who were spanked, even when controlling for the severe abuse, uh, that the type doiled, doiled out in anger. So even when controlling for that, it was like, um, those children were more likely to be involved in violent romantic relationships, often as the aggressors. And other research suggests that violent experiences during childhood make people more prone to both perpetuation and victimization of violence and in their romantic relationships. And so in each of these cases, right, there's this wiring that links the pain to love and those become solar together manifesting in either. And this is what she wrote, the instinct to violently dominate or an instinct to accept cruelty. Mm-hmm. So this is something I actually talked about with Emily Joy Allison, who wrote uh, hashtag church two. And so I talked with her in an episode this season about the connection of church two and domestic violence and intimate partner violence and all these things. So yeah, did the violent experiences of your childhood influence you to be more prone to perpetuation or victimization of violence in romantic relationships or in other relationships? Both, both. And I'll talk about myself for, well, obviously I'm on your, your show. So I'm going to talk about myself, but (laughs) (laughs) what I meant to say is, um, what comes to mind for me is I remember in my early twenties, I was so angry. It felt like in my body that there was an inferno. I was so angry. And sometimes with partners, I would throw things. And sometimes we would become physically violent towards each other, breaking things, tearing things up, hitting each other. And because I was angry and that was my excuse is you've made me mad or you've hurt me. So now I get to destroy something of yours or I get to hit you because I don't know what else to do with my anger. Yeah. And I remember just being 20, 21 years old and just, I didn't understand then why I was so angry. Mm-hmm. But now looking back, while well, I grew up in a home where there was violence 
And, and that's how anger was, I guess, exemplified, right? Or so I didn't know any other way at the time. And as I got older, it was like, oh, I'm really angry. Maybe I should talk to somebody. <laughs> Maybe I should talk about why I'm angry. What's underneath that anger? Is it that I feel demeaned, embarrassed, sad, unheard? What's underneath that? And when you start getting underneath it, that's where the healing is. And it's like, oh, I don't have to exist like this. I can, I can communicate my needs and I can stop hurting other people. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Um, what I experienced as a child had a profound impact on how I was able to relate to other people and, and understand my own emotions and just how I existed. I just thought I am, I am freaking mad and, and I don't know what to do. And, and I couldn't think, but now it's like, oh, wow, that angry girl, that was the anger that young Tasha felt that she couldn't express. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what that was because I didn't have anybody to listen, to encourage, to love me, to hold me, to say, it's going to be okay. I got you. I'm going to take care of you. Mm -hmm. And so as an adult, I had all this repressed rage mm -hmm. and now I've just got all this love, love for myself, love for other people, love for younger Tasha. Yeah. Um, so I'm not angry anymore. It's just all love. And so that's, that's the power of therapy, hashtag therapy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get some. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I did another episode this season with Charlie Amaya Scott about settler colonialism within the U S empire. And something that some language that Charlie used was recycling violence and so, yeah, it's like wrapped up in this is this recycling of violence, the violence inflicted against us and then inflicting that on someone else, like recycling the violence. Um, and so you're talking about, you know, going to therapy and getting the help. And so how did you start to heal the shame that came from being a person who was perpetuating violence for a, a person recycling that violence? You know, you wrote about the girl that you called Rachel in school. Um, and then you're talking about as you grew up and in recycling that violence in relationships, how did you heal that shame? I didn't have shame from, from that so much. I did have shame for my eight-year-old self that perpetuated violence with Rachel. Mm. That, as I wrote my book, I thought, oh my God. Just thinking my therapist parts, just thinking about my own trauma and how I'm creating a story. I have a part that creates a story of, of that being traumatizing to her. I, I bet it, it was. And just kind of, I, 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 there, I would have no way to find her, but just hoping that somehow the universe could like telepathically send a message to her to just say, I am so sorry. Hmm. I'm so sorry. And 
So writing my book was my was my apology. So to answer your question, how did I deal with the shame? Writing about it, being honest about it and saying, this is the ugliness of when you are traumatized in your home, when you're abused in your home. And then you traumatize other people. Mm-hmm. And so how did I deal with the shame? Naming it, yeah. talking about it but also having compassion for my younger parts that just didn't know, again, what do I do with these emotions underneath that whole situation? You know, when I look back, that was a fear part. Oh my God, I'm going to get in trouble. What do I do? Yeah. And it just, it just was, it was overboard. It it just, you know, the, the response that I had, it was just all fear. And that just chaos, really. And so naming it, talking about it, and just saying, this is this is what happened. And understanding it and compassion for all of my parts. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any other tools. And I have so much compassion for myself looking back and, and just on all, you know, just all that I experienced. Yeah. And I think that level of vulnerability to own a story where you're the perpetuator of violence, uh, the authenticity, the showing up as this is, this is a part of who I am. This is not all of who I am. None of these things are all of who I am. None of it's the totality, but I can, I can free myself by being honest that I did this, uh, and, and give it no more power over me in a way. Right. And I think, that helps us not live from our ego, right. To not have to try to act like, well, I never like, so for me, it's like having to hold both. I have been both a victim and I have inflicted by like both. Uh, yeah. yeah. And Nikki, I, I now I don't, I, there's seven over 7 billion people in the world. Obviously I don't know them all, <laughs> but I have never, I've never heard an abuser say, going to name that I'm an abuser. I'm just, mm-hmm. I've never heard an abuser say, I'm just going to name that I really hurt mm-hmm. my congregation by the words that I said, by the ways that I controlled people, by the ways that I manipulated people. I've never heard a, a sexual abuser say, you know what? I did sexually abuse my children. And I am so sorry that I did that. I am so sorry that I hurt them. I, I've never heard a parent that abandoned their children say, I abandoned them. I shouldn't have done that. Now, I think that that example probably happens more often where, where maybe there is some, some restoration there, some, some, some reparation there. But I've never heard a mother or a father say, I did physically abuse my children. Hmm. I did say that I hated, you know, I hated them or, or, or that I didn't want them alive or, or all of the things. I did call them names. We hear a lot from victims. Yeah. We never hear from abusers. We know that bullying happens in school. We have a lot of stories out there from people who have been bullied. We never hear from the bullies. Ironically, where the hell are they? Hmm. Where are they? I'll tell you one girl that abused me. She's ran across my Facebook feed several times. You know, yeah, it's it's like 
So, so that was, that was me saying, naming my shit. Like mm-hmm. I wasn't just the victim <laughs> of the things I hurt people. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, naming that and then not just naming it. Cause I'm not freaking proud of it, but getting some freaking help. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's that's where it's at Get, getting some help so that that doesn't that cycle doesn't continue mm-hmm. yeah yeah and I think too we could go here this focus on corporal punishment I think is influenced by this doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement within uh the the sector of Christianity I was a part of And so then I see it as not just for homes, but as a pillar of our quote justice system. Right. And so I heard Raheem Buford talk about transformational justice. Um, And so this idea of a restorative justice, a healing justice, as opposed to a punitive justice. And another podcast I love is the almost heretical podcast. And they talked with someone named uh, Mako Nagasawa about the problems with penal substitutionary atonement, and then something he puts forward as this um, alternative view, which is a medical way of looking at a, a medical atonement theory. And so, first of all, just seeing that, like, oh, there are different theories about why Jesus died, you know, is is huge. Um, and so, yeah, he explained this need to discern between retributive and restorative justice in that episode on a heretical. So I think the way we view God and the way we think God deals with us influences how we treat other people. So if God is a God of retribution and corporal punishment, then I feel like we can replicate that without remorse. We get kind of a pass on it, right? But if God is a God who restores and transforms by being a healing physician with that medical atonement theory, which kind of sounds like something Jesus said, right? <laughs> like as the great physician, then if that is how God is, then I feel like that should inform how we do everything from interacting with children to interacting with people accused of committing a crime uh, within our system. So yeah, how do you see and experience God and how has that helped you as a parent and in this reparenting of yourself and how you view other people? I think that my, my life has transformed so much and I'm in a, a blooming stage of my life at this point, but I remember viewing God as an angry, judgmental God, mm-hmm. a God who um, didn't have a whole lot of grace. Grace was limited. Mm-hmm a God who kept track of wrongs. Yeah. And, and now the beauty of, of restoring, not, not restoring, but the beauty of, of growing and decolonizing your faith is that now I'm able to experience a God who is holding me gently, like every day, who's so compassionate, whose love there is, it's limitless. And it's just there. 
no matter what. And, and it's a God in my head, part of my decolonization is seeing God as a black woman. And I see her really as, as non-binary though. And, and just her saying, you're safe now. Now that you know me, now that you see me, now that you truly belong to me, because I always belong to God, but I didn't know it. But now that you know that you really belong, mm. you're safe now. And I've got you and I'm going to take care of you. And it's like, no matter what I do, I don't ever wake up feeling like I have to be perfect or I have to be a certain kind of a person. I have to say a certain amount of things. I remember years ago having all of the Bibles, every kind of a Bible and the concordances and, you know, various study Bibles and the parallel Bible and this other Bible and, and all the things. And so I have to put in a certain amount of time and, and listening to all the preachers on TV. I re, my DVR was listed with all the, the, the different TV evangelists and taking notes and feeling like I got to get, you know, learn all the things that there are to learn about God, because this is the way that, that this is the only way that I can live is. And now I know that I don't have to do all the things mm -hmm. that God is in me. And when I'm existing from a, a, what we call in the internal family systems world of therapy, when I'm, when I'm operating in self, that compassionate, that patient place, that loving place, yeah. that's God. Mm -hmm. So I experience God totally different and it allows me to just show up as my full authentic self. Mm -hmm. You walk a little bit taller when you know that you're loved. Mm -hmm. When you go through hard times and I, and not just, when I go through hard times, I go, I allow myself to have my pity parties. I go through my heart, my heart stuff. I still have depression. I still have anxiety. I still have PTSD. But the voice that used to tell me you're not loved mm -hmm. or that you're going to, I remember in church, they would say, you're going to enter a, a retrobated state or something like that, like that God would stop caring. And then I would be placed in this void that was kind of like hell or something. I don't, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on your podcast. Please edit that out. If <laughs> Oh, it, it actually didn't even come through. No. <laughs> what did you yeah, say? I said it's bullshit. That, that oh. whole like, like, you know, you've only got a certain amount of things that you can do and God's going to give up on you. I go through my hard stuff, but at the end of the day, I know that I am loved. Mm. And then it allows me to practice loving myself, practice loving young Tasha, yeah. showing her love and validation. But then also I'm able to show up in my relationships in a more loving and patient way mm -hmm. and understanding other people's stuff, other people's parts, how I could write my book and I could talk about the ugly stuff that people did to me, but also have compassion for things that they went through that maybe they're unaware of how it impacted them. Yeah. Right. Right. That compassion is everything. That gentleness is everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I know. So in January, 2019 is when we left Remedy church, the church I said, where I was spiritually abused and it was in leaving that church. We started going to a different church and I had become a parent while at Remedy and the parenting books recommended to us by the church leadership. And that Stephen read when he was going through sort of a uh, elder training that he participated in advocated for spanking. And so we did when we were parents there, we spanked and we hated it every time. And it's kind of that idea of you're going against what your body, like your body's telling you not to do it, you know, but it's like, well, God said, and the church culture says, um, but when we left remedy and went to another church, the pastor there one Sunday talked about how when kids mess up big is when they need the biggest hugs. Mm-hmm. Okay. That just took me out. Okay. So the, literally the next day, my oldest kid was upset and he hit me and this kid took off running and was hiding under the crib of our youngest. And I just crouched down and I looked under there and just held my arms out. And, the, and my kid said, please don't spank me. And I replied, mm. Pastor Derwin said, when kids mess up big is when they need the biggest hug. So I just want to give you a big hug. And Mm. that everything changed for me after that, because I realized the responsibility I have as a parent to show my kids what God is like. And I wanted to show them all those things you're saying, gentleness, this compassion, uh, a tenderness and a kindness that I had not before. Yeah. And um, it's really interesting because even in last week's episode with Kevin Garcia, who wrote Bad Theology Kills, which I brought up, you know, in our last book club call. So Kevin was talking about reimagining theology and they asked the question, is this theology helpful and how is it helpful? And if this theology doesn't do anything good for us, it's okay to put it down and try something new. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so seeing God as someone who was watching my every move and who would send me to hell if I didn't do whatever and like all things you're saying, that wasn't helpful. It, It no longer, like it was never helpful, but I finally understood it wasn't helpful, right? Uh, for me. And so, yeah, with all of this, I am really curious to get to how you, you brought up the withdrawal of love being such a fear. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, how did you get to a place of establishing boundaries for yourself, like with therapy? And what was that like for you to establish boundaries for yourself? Um, Could you ask me that question in a different, what do you mean boundaries with myself? Oh, sorry. So like um, being able to tell people, no, being able to use your voice. how did you get to a point where you felt safe to do that, to have boundaries? Yeah. You know, my therapist, um, she said, Tasha, she said, write down every person that's in your life. And I did. And it was a really long list because I was, I knew a lot of people. And she said, what would happen if you said no to them? And I said, they would leave me. They wouldn't be my friend anymore. And she said, and so what? If they're not your friend anymore, like, what does that mean? Then I'll be alone. I'll be abandoned, you know? And and I won't be loved. And she said, if they leave because you said no, then they didn't love you in the first place. If they leave because you drew a boundary, then they didn't love you in the first place. You're allowed to say no. You're allowed to change your mind. You're allowed to speak your truth. And those who go, they're not in your life for the right reasons anyways. And so 
Um, how did I get to that point? I got tired of having my heart broken. Yeah. And so much of why I changed or, or what propelled me to do anything is because I got tired of having my heart broken. Mm-hmm. And so being abandoned as a child from the people that should have loved me the most, that was the first breaking of my heart. And then I saw that replicated in other people throughout my life, the leaving, the not needing me anymore, not wanting me anymore. But it became, what was happening is that the more I stayed silent, the more I kept people pleasing, kept kept codependent behaviors, you know, going out of my way to do so much for other people, all of that stuff, the more I did that, the more I was breaking my own heart. And sometimes those behaviors still still, still surface. It's not like I'm 100% all clear from toxic shit. Like it still comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, no, the toxic stuff still comes up. Uh, but I know where it comes from and I'm able to address it. But really at some point we all get tired of our, most of us get tired of breaking our own hearts. Yeah. And so now as a 42 year old woman, It's more like, I'm going to speak my truth, whatever that is. And I have a funny, it's not, I don't know. It's kind of funny, but it's about Andrea and I, you know, Andrea and I. Yes. So, you know, so Andrea was, we were trying to find an Airbnb. This is an example of boundaries for anybody listening. Andrea is my best friend from, from the Her Story Speaks podcast. And we were looking for an Airbnb. And it was me and Andrea and my friend, Monica. Monica is my friend from uh, the Still Becoming podcast. And so we're, it's the three of us in a text thread. And, and the, so they had sent several Airbnbs and I'm like, oh, th- you know, that's the one that we should. So I, you know, I said my piece on that's the one. And then I'm thinking, oh, it's settled. We all agree. And then they kept going back and forth. Well, what about this one? Or what about that one? What about this one? And typically I would get so irritated, but I wouldn't say anything. And I started to feel the anxiety in my body. Like just pick one already. The old Tasha would have not said a word. I was so irritated by the conversation. I'm like, this is making me anxious. I just said via text, I said, listen, I'm feeling some anxiety in my body because of this ongoing, you know, conversation, the indecision, it's causing me anxiety. I'm going to exit this conversation. And they were like, thank you so much, like for drawing that boundary. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to sit here and be frustrated with you two. Y'all want to talk for, you know, a hundred text group text messages about (laughs) (laughs) leave me out of it. Yeah. So Nikki, that was me drawing a boundary and, and that's huge for me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the old Tasha would have just been frustrated and been like, "Oh my God, they're taking forever," and blah 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 blah. Yeah, and then I realized I don't have to be a part of this conversation, so I said to Andrea, "Just let me know when you pick one. Just send me the address." Like we're we're I good. love it. Yeah, <laughs> and knowing because you even wrote about like friendships, and so knowing, yeah. yes, that is a huge thing for you to be able to make that step because of what you had come to see about your relationships with, with friends and the codependency and all those things. Yeah. Like such big 
such big growth for sure. Yeah. Okay. I feel like this is the last question I want to ask for before we wrap up. Cause I feel like with all of our conversations on the calls, it would be irresponsible of me not to ask you about this because it's about sex. And so I feel like we have to, like, we just have to. Yeah. So, um, knowing everything you went through, uh, which people can read more of the details about, um, about rape, you experienced as a young child, even at 14 being subjected to an, an, an examination of your vulva and vagina to see if your hymen was torn and which doesn't even give indication of virginity, but that right. happened to you, um, being checked, uh, by family members and you wrote, oh, and in thinking like the infidelity of the, your first of your marriage, your first marriage yeah. that you wrote about in mm-hmm. your book, the, uh, knowing that that was happening, all these violations of your body wrapped up with sex or with sexual pleasure or things like that. Right. So you wrote, um, and I want to make sure I say it right. I thought of my body as having only three functions, sex, pain, and humiliation. Mm -hmm. So you talk very positively about sex now and very freely (laughs) to the discomfort of other people sometimes I'm here for it. I love it. It doesn't matter. Um, but that was a journey for me to get comfortable with it too. But yeah. Yeah. So how did you come to be comfortable with and enjoy sexual pleasure and heal from all the lies of purity culture, as well as what you went through? I think that was again, a part of my own evolution. And that was a part of decolonizing my faith. Like everything is taught to that as well as ongoing trauma therapy, and then realizing that the things that happened to my body, the things that other people did to my body don't define me. Hmm. And so I was able to take my body back and say, my body belongs to me. My sexuality belongs to me. My vagina belongs to me. It does not belong to my abuser. It does not belong to, uh, you know, anybody that mistreated my body, that abused my body. That's the power of, of therapy is, is you can take it back. Mm. It doesn't have to exist in that harmful, abusive place. Yeah. Right. And so now the Tasha that you get to see, you know, and, and sex is my favorite freaking topic. I hope I want to talk about it every day, Uh you know, um, (laughs) When I get off of here, I'm headed to the airport to go see all of my friends, Andrea, uh, and I arrive at the same time. Um, and so uh, we're going to be in Atlanta. And no doubt, they named me like the sex queen. Like, you know, I'm the, the, I'm the sex educator of our group. So they get to go home with lots of information. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I don't even it. know if I should be talking about this out loud, but anyway, <laughs> um, but, th- but that again, coming from the healed part of me, like, and, and because the years that I remained unhealed and the trauma was still in my body to a larger degree, I hated my body mm. and, and sex was, was a chore. It was a thing that, that I have to do because I'm a wife. It's my duty to do this thing. Well, duty erases pleasure. Mm. 
Yeah. So, so it's been a long road of, of therapy and decolonization to take back what God has given to me for my own pleasure. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And again, Such a I good really, question. Yeah. I really want people to read your book. Cause you know, we even get this insight into you, um, exploring your sexuality and living into the fullness of who you are and claiming your like that you are a, a queer black woman, you know, like you, you embody all of this healing and I love, I love all of it. So where can people find your book and find you online to stay up to date on your work? Yeah. If they want to follow me online, uh, that I can be found at Tasha Hunter LCSW on Instagram. And to purchase my book, people can reach out to me directly on any one of my websites, TashaHunterAuthor.com or my private practice, AscensionGrowthCenter.com or Instagram, TashaHunterLCSW. You can get a signed copy. Um, and I, you know, so if they want to just contact me for a signed copy, that's great. Or anywhere that books are sold, you know, via Amazon is probably the best route. Um, either way, they can, they, they can do that. Awesome. I'll put all that in the show notes. Um, what is your hope for your book here now that it's been out since 2020? I want people to, to keep purchasing it, keep um, sharing it. I want people to know that you can go through really, you know, really horrible events in your life and you can rise, you can bloom. Mm-hmm will give the world the best of who you are and that the abuse absolutely does not define you. That's my hope. That's my, that's my greatest hope for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, at the beginning of the conversation, I'd asked you to describe yourself in three words when looking back into your childhood and adolescence, when you look at yourself today in three words, how do you describe yourself now? Freaking beautiful bitch. I love it. Yes. Yeah, so juxtap- <laughs> <laughs> juxtaposing that, right? Like fearful, <laughs> fragile, innocent, and now a what was it? A freaking, freaking beautiful, beautiful bitch. bitch. Yeah. No, I mean, just I, I, I think if I were to three words that I would use to distra- describe myself now, I would say personified that's not three words but that's two words beautiful yeah Yeah. that's who I am I don't know yeah I love it I love it well thank you thank you thank you so 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 much for making the time for this conversation today for talking about your book with me and talk about your your journey healing from all the complex developmental trauma that you experienced and I enjoyed our conversation and I'm just so grateful for you in my life and thank you so much a thousand thank yous Tasha for coming on to the podcast and for this conversation we were able to have make sure to purchase a copy of what children remember which I'm giving away a copy of over on the Broadening Narrative Instagram page. And follow Tasha on social media to stay up to date on her work. As a reminder, the music for the season is titled Love Is by Bandy, and the full song will close out the episode. You can stream, purchase, and download Bandy's music at bandy17.bandcamp.com. 
If you like what you heard today, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. I really think that little by little, person by person, we can broaden the narrative. I also want to thank Jordan Lukens for his help with editing and Daniel Boland for creating the episode graphic. You can access the Broadening the Narrative blog and transcripts for episodes as they become available by visiting broadeningthenarrative.blogspot.com. Come back next week for the last conversation in season three with life, wellness, and spiritual coach Tommy Allgood about creating anti-oppressive structures. Grace and peace, friends. This is an old to my religion. It used to be a crown on my pendant. Now I'm ten toes down, reminiscing. You were supposed to be the difference. But then when you got close to me, you flipped it and told me I'm the one who was conflicted. Keep it down, keep it hidden. Your colorful crown strictly forbidden. I'm telling you how because it's written. Pray that gay away. I used to listen and these words were like a prison. All it did was hurt and strip me of my feelings. So I strayed away. You're more concerned with the image you are projecting. Instead of the humans you are protecting. It's deadly. If even one adult becomes accepting, it lessens the of suicidal thoughts of these adolescents you're putting people on the streets and trying to flex about it this type of evil is deceiving and i'm vexed about it it shuns believers and i need for you to recognize it true love is healing and i plead for you to expedite it realigning and realizing the silver lining never hypnotizing or weaponizing with false idols deeply vital we need revival to break the cycles and unite our minds over what's inside and makes up our bios love is kind prunes of fear keeps me in mind never fails my identity is fearlessly written into me and i am sending him shamefully i pretend to be pleased with an antonym of me seats with the anti-inner me claiming this was invented no it's a form of violence only made worse by my silence centering my worth on your sirens my wiring is beautiful non-binary yeah you're beautiful queer trans gay yeah you're beautiful enough with the self-hate and raise a ladder if you can't relate it takes a lot of strength to decimate imputed shame and all the pain Breaking chains and bringing chains, living to refrain from giving into oppressive reigns. Beautiful Savior teaching us that we should love our neighbor. To love our neighbor, we would have to learn to love ourselves. But if we shelf immutable pieces of our framework, then can we say that we really know how to do it well? Realigning and realizing the silver lining, never hypnotizing or weaponizing with false idols. Deeply vital, we need revival to break the cycles and unite our minds over what's inside and make some more vials. Love is kind. Prunes of fear keeps me in mind, never fails. Give me hope, give me sunshine, from the east to the west side. Give me peace, give me rest, I wanna go down to the wayside. You are found as a place, ten toes down, you are Give me hope, give me sunshine, from the east to the west side. Give me peace, give me rest, I wanna go down to the wayside. You were found as a place, ten toes down, you are not erased. Love is patient, love is kind. Prunes of fear keeps me in mind, never fails. Love is kind, prunes of fear keeps me in mind, never fails.